Well, good morning. This morning, I, as I was getting up, this, the first bolts of lightning were crashing outside, and I rejoiced in that because it wasn't snow. <laughs> how, how we have been brutalized by winter this year when that was my first thought was, oh, praise the Lord, it's not snow. I'm not getting up to see if it's going to be snowing too much or uh, any of those, I was uh, very thankful for that. Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning, returning to Philippians again as we move well now into chapter 4. And as we move into chapter 4, the title of our message this morning is Demonstrating Grace in a Disagreeable World. Demonstrating Grace in a Disagreeable World. We have a great opportunity to exemplify uh, the title this morning. And uh, we have already sung of it. In fact, the two songs that we have sung uh, really highlight really our outline. That is our outline. Uh, we'll be dealing with rejoicing and grace, both of them together. But it is in a world that is disagreeable in every way. It is a world that is dissatisfied in every way. It is a struggle in this life, and our world seizes upon it. A mother of three young children was in labor with her fourth child when complications began to happen. The mother and the child both died from those complications. The year was 1932. Her husband was a young father and just beginning in ministry as a pastor. During the funeral service, the grief-stricken pastor was seen writing something down on a piece of paper. A friend would later ask him about it, and he said that he had just wrote as a poem came to mind. It is a poem of deep, supernatural joy, written in the valley of despair. I want to read that poem for you. He says this, My father's way may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, but in my soul I'm glad to know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hope my hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for He doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that today will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in Him, He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see, my eyesight's far to dim, but come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to Him. For by and by the mist will lift, the plain it all He'll make. Though all the way, though dark to me, He made not one mistake. This morning, there is great joy in knowing that God has placed the church in this age to demonstrate grace. God has placed the church in this age to demonstrate His grace. As we begin to study this morning the passage that is before us, Paul is going to say, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. That is not a call to an emotion. That is a call to obedient response in the midst of heartache, in the midst of trials, and in the midst of happiness. So Paul is going to begin to cause us to understand how we as Christians have been gifted with something different from the things of the world. And as Paul does so, I want to read the text. We're only going to study two verses 
this morning that is here in the text in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to fill it in with some other places in the New Testament. Paul says this in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to all or to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have just sung these two songs that are our outline for the message this morning. What a great opportunity for us to rejoice in a world that is so disagreeable, a world that is so self-centered that when things don't go our way, we immediately jump ship and complain and whine and moan. And then when things really don't go our way, we become distraught and destitute. Lord, I praise you that the Christian is called to something different. While we certainly go through the range of sufferings and trials that we will face in a life that is filled with the stain of sin upon creation, we praise you that we rest back in the great truth that we are called to rejoice always in the Lord. I praise you that this rejoicing is not something that we can do in our own natural abilities but is supernaturally given to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and that it indeed is a fruit of the Spirit, as we'll see in Galatians in a few moments. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding hearts no matter where we are at. Maybe we are at a high point, a point of rejoicing, a point of time in which we see great happiness and zeal. Or we are at a low place where we have suffered loss or bad news, or financial struggles, marital strife, whatever it would happen to be that is that which would try to seize our joy. I pray that instead we would recognize that these two are moments for rejoicing, that it is through these trials, these testings, that we are drawn near to you where we need to be. And therefore Paul can command We are to rejoice always. Lord, I pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that no matter where we are at today, we would be encouraged from your word, that we'd be encouraged for obedience, and that that obedience would be that which would drive us to rejoicing no matter the circumstances of our daily living. That your name would be glorified, that a world around us would see the grace that is demonstrated through us, that has been given to us, that would be demonstrated through us to them and that they would see something different in us, that your name would be glorified. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. We ask your blessing now upon your word. Give me the words to speak, that they would be from you. It is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen. As we dig into the text before us, we are going to continue to work on what Paul has commanded us. And we're going to really get a a staccato of imperatives here. As Paul tells us to resolve to be joyful. Resolve to be joyful. And uh, Philippians 4 is moving us rapidly uh, through a series of these imperatives, a staccato, as it were, of imperatives, as Paul instructs the church to become a picture of satisfaction. What does it look like to the outside world when they see the church acting and behaving just like them? Where we are dissatisfied, where we are frustrated, where we are aggravated, and where that we have no problem of expressing to those around us. 
Do they see us as any difference when they do the same? Or do they see us different as believers because no matter the circumstances of life, we rejoice in the Lord always? To a disagreeable and dissatisfied world, the church is a picture of the reality of living in Christ and a demonstration of His grace when we follow His Word. So that is what Paul is calling us to. He's calling us to following after the things of the Lord. And he says, first, joy is God's gift to the redeemed. Joy is God's gift to the redeemed. He says this in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. There is no loopholes. If you read it, Paul doesn't say, uh, rejoice always in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. He, He doesn't say, unless, or with the exception of, or in the event of. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. No loopholes. We discovered earlier in the book of Philippians, back in chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says this. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Remember several months ago when we were studying this text that Paul is giving us no loopholes there. He says, this is a command. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, and I can remind you and remind you and remind you, and it is no skin off my nose to continue to remind you because you need it and I need it. It's safe for you, and it's good for me. It's good for me to remember these things. Paul is doing the same again here as he comes into chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I've already told you that, but I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Paul is commanding that we rejoice. And as we studied in chapter 3, verse 1, you cannot command an emotion. Perhaps you've tried to do that. You've told your children, stop crying. (laughs) How well does that work? And not at all. We know that you cannot command an emotion. Paul is not commanding an emotion. He is requiring rejoicing. Life is filled with many unhappy moments, unhappy events, unhappy tears, and unhappy feelings. Happiness is an emotion, and it is circumstantial. It's based upon what the circumstances are around you. If you have what makes you happy, guess what? You're happy. If those things have been taken from you, you're unhappy. Very good. You're unhappy. It's circumstantial. Happiness cannot be commanded. It can be manipulated, but it cannot be commanded. Paul commands rejoicing. Joy is internal. It is responding to the nature of God, rather of God's Spirit, at work within us. In other words, what Paul is saying when he says rejoice always in the Lord is rest in the things of the Lord. Trust in Him because He does not change. Paul's rejoicing His command to rejoice is not circumstantial. 
His command to rejoice is obedience to Christ. Obedience to the work of the Spirit of God. And, as I mentioned earlier in my prayer, I'm going to mention again here, it is produced by the Holy Spirit. The believer can obey this commandment because of the work of the Spirit of God producing joy in the life of the believer. So, turn over to James for just a moment. Keep your finger here. We're going to turn to James. And listen to what James says about this. James chapter 1. You know this. And it's fascinating that James starts out his book in this way. He says in verse 2, following through verse 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Believer, James says that you are to have joy in trials. In fact, you're to consider the trials joy. Because we know that God has an ultimate purpose in whatever has been brought to us. And remember the quote from back in chapter 3 when we studied that in Philippians The idea that if God has allowed this to take place, I am resting comfortably knowing that it has been thoroughly vetted. It has gone through the fullness of the triune God and it has arrived at me. And God in his infinite wisdom and his infinite understanding knows that it is good for me to endure these trials. Therefore, I will rejoice. It is helpful to remember that Paul is not sitting in his lazy boy watching sports on a Sunday afternoon when he writes this text. Paul is chained to a praetorian guard when he says rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. Can you imagine the testimony of Christ demonstrated through Paul to those guards who are chained to him day in and day out? We have no idea if the guards were literate, able to read. They probably were, as they were well-seasoned Praetorian guardsmen. They were probably well-equipped, well-educated as well. And so it's likely that they had nothing to do themselves, so they were watching Paul write. As they would watch Paul write, they would begin to see Paul's actions demonstrated not only in what he wrote, but in the way he behaved. Can you imagine the testimony? Paul, you're under house arrest. We've spent a lot of time together. Why are you rejoicing in these things? Joy is synonymous with the gospel. It was evident throughout the events of the birth of Christ. Think of all of the times that joy was expressed. When the angelic beings announced the arrival of Christ, what was the emotion? It was not emotion. There was the happiness and the obedience and joy. The joy of the Lord was evident. Joy is synonymous with the gospel. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, just write it down, verse 48 and 52. When the gospel penetrates, explodes onto the scene of Gentile groups, there is rejoicing at the receiving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rejoicing over and over. In fact, Acts 13.42 says that when they had received it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They had received the truth and rejoicing was the evidence of it. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. 
Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. One author writes, joy is supernatural. It allows us to rejoice that God is not only in control, but worthy of being worshipped and praised no matter what. Rejoicing has nothing to do with the circumstances and everything to do with your dependency upon Christ. It is, and it's important that we understand this as well, it is received as we Think about this being God's gift. It is received by obedience to the Word of God. If you're saying, I'm not, I'm not feeling very joyful, we must understand that there is a part that we must respond to. Paul is not saying, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be joyful. And again, I will say, you will be joyful. He says, rejoice. That is an active command to you. You and I have a responsibility to actively participate in rejoicing. We do that not by sitting back, but by actively engaging in obedience to the work of the Spirit of God in us in response to the gospel and also in obedience to the Word of God. The joy that is produced by the Spirit comes through obedience to God's Word. You don't just snatch it out of the air and make it your own. It is something that comes from the Word of God. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 15 The first part of verse 16, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and a delight to my heart. This is the weeping prophet, by the way. The one who would suffer terribly because he was obedient to presenting the commands, the warnings of the Lord, the prophetic warnings of the Lord to the people in Jerusalem. Weeping prophet, he says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and a delight to my heart. John, the apostle in 1 John 1, 4 writes this. Joy, uh, he wrote so that his readers may understand that joy may be made complete. Why was it complete? Because of the inspired word of God that John was writing in his first epistle. What was it that would bring joy to them? What would bring rejoicing was obedience to understanding the Word of the Lord to them. Through the letters, the written Word of God, the inspired Word of God. We can try to manufacture it, but that's not obedience to the Word of God. We can try to create it, but that's not obedience to the Word of God. We could seek some supernatural moment, but that's not obedience to the Word of God. We must be those who obey God's Word. When a believer says, well, I don't feel very joyful, first, that's a feeling, not a command. And second, are you obeying? Are you participating? Are you following after the things of the Lord? Are you allowing the fruit of the Spirit to be that which exudes out of you because of the work of the Spirit of God in you? That is... What Paul is saying when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. But it is also that which is deepened through trials. That's our second point under this first heading, deepened through trials. And again, I remind you that Paul is not sitting on a lazy boy watching sports. As Paul is writing this, 
he is suffering himself, but there's more suffering, and he's going to write to those who are suffering. Turn over briefly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. This is a convicting combination as Paul is writing to the church. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That is, you obeyed. For you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So by obeying, by being imitators, they also then were afflicted. And when they were afflicted, what was the results? Joy. The joy of the Holy Spirit. They followed Paul's directives. They followed the imperatives. And when they followed the imperatives, they received affliction. And when affliction came, joy was all the more. Rejoicing was all the more. Paul would also write in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he says of himself that he was sorrowful and yet with always rejoicing. So this is the difference. Our world says that in order for us to have arrived, in order for us to really feel as if we're following after the things of the Lord, we should be happy all the time. Isn't that not what God wants for us is ultimately our happiness? That is a worldview that is being taught. And the Christian has bought it because we've thrown God into the mix. Believer, it is not about your happiness. It is about your rejoicing. This is far greater value to the believer to be rejoicing. I've often contemplated how believers in places that have received intense persecution can have the joy of the Lord. And you walk into their presence and you say, Wow, I have been with somebody who has found great joy and their suffering has been immense. These are not platitudes. These are not psychological platitudes that the world is trying to feed us. The world is trying to feed us. If you're happy, then God is with you. In fact, there's whole movements within Christianity, quote-unquote Christianity, that are pushing the same. Unless you're happy, then God is not with you. God is with you when you're happy, and so God wants you to be happy. So He wants you to have those things, and He wants you to do those things, and He wants you to command those things, and, and all of that. That's all extra-biblical. That is nothing to do with Christianity, and it's everything to do with humanism. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your psychological platitudes to ease the suffering. Paul's tears, and you better believe there were tears, were mixed with the conviction that God is in control. And if God is in control then what comes out of the trials and the circumstances will be for my good, will be better for me than the psychological platitudes. Not everything in life will bring happiness. You parents know that it is not good uh, to give everything to your children, right? They want something. They demand something. I was watching one of those uh, little videos on Facebook the other day, and a mom was coddling her child, and the child wanted a pan out of the uh, cabinet, and the mother originally said no, and eventually gave in. The child grabs the 
pan, walks over, the mother sits down, and the child whacks the mother in the head with a pan. And the mom says, ow, why'd you do that? And in a little two-year-old's voice, the, the words of pan hit head. <laughs> it's not good to give children everything that they want. It's not good to receive everything that you want just because you think it makes you happy. That's not what is best for you. Trials will bring tears. But through those trials, our joy is deepened as we see the Lord in control. Isn't it good to know that God is in control? We don't know that when everything is going our way. We don't know that when everything that we touch turns to gold. We say, wow, I must have it all together. But when we encounter trials and and we complain in the midst of trials at times, unfortunately. But as we're going through trials and we see and experience the suffering and we really feel the tears. And I'm not talking about small trials. I'm talking about deep hurt, deep sacrifice, deep pain. When we walk through those trials, our joy is deepened as we see that the Lord is the one in control. We'd been deceiving ourselves the whole time. But to know that God is in control, we rejoice in Him. Why? Because you can't hold it together. But He is the one who is unchanging. He is the one who is unfailing. He is the one who is unwavering. He is our refuge. And He is our source of joy. Paul says that it is also motivated let's go back as paul is going to get into this we're in philippians 4 again verse 4 rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice this is motivated by heaven this is motivated by heaven paul's going to get there we're we're going to let him get there as we study throughout the rest of chapter 4 he's going to get there for us but there is an expectancy there's an expectant look to see the savior face to face The call to rejoice always is not a natural obedience from us. It is a supernatural obedience. And Peter speaks to our joy that is motivated by heaven in the passage that Andrew read for us in our call to worship. In fact, go back there to 1 Peter and again listen to what Peter says. Again, to a church that is suffering. Verses 8 and 9, he says this of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Though you do not see Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is, the moment that you walk into the presence of your Savior, all of the trials and the sufferings, all of the growth will all come to that fruition presence of our savior look over to chapter a little later in the book of first peter chapter 4 verse 13 and the scripture says this but rejoice insofar as you share christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed in the midst of trials and sufferings you don't see the end from the beginning you don't see all that there is But Paul 
and Peter both are affirming to you and I that the way that we accomplish that is by having our eyes focused on eternity. The way that we're looking ahead. We're not able to see the beginning from the end, and we don't need to see the beginning from the end. We know what the end looks like in the end. Our eyes are focused there. Our eyes are focused to that point. When we look to heaven, we can rejoice in every circumstance. We're obedient to the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're obedient to the Word of God. We're deepened through trials. And we're keeping our eyes focused on eternity. Why is that so important? Because the here and now is a mess. It's a mess. If you're comparing yourself to your neighbor's happiness, you are always going to be comparing yourself and never achieving, never arriving. And always discouraged, always despondent. I've said before, and I'll probably use it again, it's a quick illustration, the number one prescribed medicine in the country is antidepressant medicines. There is some real reasons for that. But there's also a lot of reasons where we just start to compare ourselves with one another instead of our eyes focused on eternity. Beloved, let us have our eyes focused on eternity. Because it is supernatural to rejoice always, it is also very powerful to the depressed, despairing, and disappointed human race around us. Our rejoicing demonstrates something so unique that it is mystifying to them. They can't understand it. They see Christianity has not kept us from suffering, has has allowed us even the same traumatic experiences that they face. However, they see us roll up our sleeves, practicing faith, living out through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and through it all, they see us resolve to rejoice in the trustworthiness of our Lord. Rejoicing is the positive testimony of the trustworthiness of our great God. Is God worthy of your trust? That should receive a hearty amen. We are those who must follow the Lord because He alone is trustworthy. Paul moves on. It's tied together, but he's moving on as he helps us in verse 5 to put this into practice. What does this look like? We are to develop a reputation for gentleness. Uh, Develop a reputation of gentleness. And we are to be known for a gentle spirit. Look at verse 5 of Philippians chapter 4. He says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness, in some of your translations, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Known for a gentle spirit. Paul continues in verse 5 with a second but related difficult imperative. And how do I know it's difficult? Because we drive on the same highways. Say, what does that mean? Well, what does the word gentleness mean? The word gentleness means, or reasonableness as the ESV translates it, it means forbearing or yielding. What happens? A lane is ending. You're driving out. In fact, I hear that the highways are, there's going to be two lane closures today, uh, this weekend downtown. And so as you're driving downtown and lanes are starting to merge together, what happens? Not gentleness. Have you ever noticed, and, and I noticed this a long time ago with my grandfather. 
My grandfather, who is very Dutch, has got to be first place in everything, and uh, we're driving down the road, and, and I notice my grandfather, the lane next to us is ending, and the car is trying to get in front of him, that is trying to merge over. He's like, not on your life. And so he speeds up. And so the guy's got to merge in behind. But the car behind says, nuh-uh, you need to plan better ahead. And so the next car moves up. So it's three cars back before that guy's allowed to zipper in. And so I observed that as a little child. I caught myself doing it last week. That's not gentle. I'm like, you should have planned ahead. We're here together. Now you think I'm going to let you in. I don't think so. We struggle with this attitude of a gentle spirit. Paul commands us to be reasonable. He uses the same word for reasonableness or gentleness in Titus chapter 3, verse 2. There the word is used as opposed to quarrelsomeness. The word literally means to be forbearing, the one who yields, or to be big-hearted. Gentle or reasonable, we must be careful because we have this idea in our mind that it just means that we let everybody walk on us as Christians. But gentleness or reasonableness does not mean that you get walked on, but it does mean that you yield. So how do those two work together? We actually have rejected this idea in secular culture in the battle between men and women, as it were. And here's how. The English language actually has the definition of this, and we used to use it, and we used to demonstrate it all the time. In fact, I've noticed many of you are still using it, even though culture has rejected it. We have a word in our culture, gentlemen. What is a gentleman? We define it as one who is courteous, kind, modest, and yielding. He, though powerful, strong, opens doors, doesn't come to blows, doesn't lose his cool. He watches his words and his actions. He isn't off color. He doesn't demean women, and he doesn't disrespect his peers. That is the definition of a gentleman. That is what Paul means when he says, have a gentle spirit. Be one who is yielding. How would this, because secular culture has removed this, how would this stand out today? I don't know about you, but I've been... The guy holding the door as people are walking in and they don't say thank you. I just opened the door for you, stood out of the side and let you go first and now you get to order your food before I do. And you just walk in as if you deserve that. Isn't it easy to get out of the gentleman stage? We must be those who are gentle spirit. Paul says that this is a command. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Let it be demonstrated to everyone. It is not about holding the door and then standing in line behind the person that you just held the door for and say, well, 
Where I come from, people would say, thank you. That's not gentle spirit. Gentle spirit is the one who says, while I could take care of whatever I needed to take care of, and I have the strength and the capacity to do so, I'm going to yield. I'm going to let you go. And I want to demonstrate that for the sake of Christ. Why? Because Paul says that the Lord is near. He doesn't let us get off with holding the door and then letting someone go and standing behind them muttering underneath our breath. He says, let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. If he hadn't have added that last little bit, well, I let my gentleness be known, and I let my force be known. <laughs> it says, the Lord is at hand. As we are to be known for our gentleness, we are to be watching for the coming of the Lord. There's two, two ways that this phrase is possibly interpreted, and I think both are legitimate, and probably both are what Paul had in mind. He could be speaking prophetically, that at any moment Christ would return. So we're looking to the near return of Christ, and that would certainly fit eschatologically in times theology of both Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers. It would certainly fit that. But it could also be referring to the immediate or imminent presence of Christ. That the Lord is here. He's paying attention. He's watching. And that too fits all of the context of the New Testament. The Lord is near to you right now. I believe both of these ideas Paul had in mind. Because the Jesus is never absent. Jesus is never absent. Let your gentle spirit be, know, be made known to all men because the Lord is at hand. He's coming again very soon. What a shame it would be for you to be standing in line behind the person that you just walked, allowed to walk through the door in front of you and you're in the middle of saying, where I come from, we say, rapture. <laughs> but it would also be in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is your Lord, standing there for you to say, you know, that wasn't very friendly. That wasn't very kind. Or some people think pretty highly of themselves. Some offhanded comment. Last night, Lisa was reading the testimony of a friend who often travels to help churches go through leadership and conflict matters. He was traveling from New Orleans to Phoenix, and his habits is to give out pens and gospel cards wherever he goes. And so instead of taking a pen, <laughs> he leaves a pen. And he leaves it specifically with somebody, and it's just a, a random pen. It doesn't have anything on it. It's just a, a pen. But then he gives him a gospel card as well. And he wrote yesterday how he had 
just settled into a seat on the plane, an American Airlines flight from New Orleans to Phoenix. It settled into the seat on a plane when a lady, a fellow passenger, walked by, recognized him and said, oh, you're the pastor who gives out pins. What a thing to be remembered by. You're the pastor who gives out pins. And he said, well, uh, yeah, I guess I am. And hands her another pen and a gospel card. A few minutes later, a flight attendant, not hearing that conversation, is walking past, doing her rounds and checking and make sure everybody's in their assigned seats and so forth, and walks past and stops, backs up and says, hey, I know you. You're the pastor who gives out pens. He says, yes, I am. And he gave her a pen and a, a gospel card. A few minutes later, as the flight is now taking off and they're in the air, another stewardess is coming down the aisles and they're serving and kind of taking the orders for what they would like to, what snack they wanted and what drink they wanted. And as she got to his seat, she's writing it all down, gets to his seat, and her pen dies. And he says, ah! Oh. And he gives her a pen and a gospel card. Finally, at the car rental company, the agent at the counter greeted my friend warmly, recognizing him instantly. He had already received two purple pens for his wife, who loved the color purple. This man is an Arab Christian who has experienced immense trials for his faith. And my friend is a source of rejoicing, gentle spirit, reasonableness over a five-cent pen. He wrote this, pain, is, pain in life is common. Jesus is the common solution. What a gentle spirit who uses every opportunity to bring glory to the Lord. Beloved, that is what Paul has called us to do today. It may be demonstrated in a five-cent pen, but the gentle spirit has caught the attention of a fellow passenger, a stewardess, blessed another stewardess, and has caught the attention and been a source of rejoicing for an Arab Christian in Phoenix who has suffered for his faith. Use every opportunity to bring glory to the Lord. I want to leave you with this phrase as we prepare for the Lord's table. Another author wrote this. He said, the world is watching us today. Will we choose to demonstrate a settled conviction that our God is worthy of worship and praise? even when our heart is broken. What a convicting line. Do we only rejoice when we feel happy? The world is watching you, beloved. Will you choose to demonstrate a settled conviction that our God is worthy of worship and praise?
even when our heart is broken. Praise the Lord for Paul. I imagine every morning, every evening, every afternoon, as Paul thought of the challenges of being under house arrest, chained to a praetorian guard, that his heart would break. Many days probably filled with tears, broken, but with a settled conviction that our God is worthy of worship and praise. As we prepare to partake in the Lord's table this morning, is that your settled conviction? That our God is worthy of worship and praise. If so, let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known to all people because the Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't rejoice in circumstances. Don't rejoice in places, people, or things. Rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul would say, I'm going to remind you again, rejoice. Let me close this portion in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are those who are easily manipulated by the circumstances of life. We look around us and we see those who have more than we have, or they're seemingly happier than we are happy. And we have deceived ourselves into believing that that is the end all. And we recognize that it falls into this fatalistic, humanistic idea that he who dies with the most toys wins. Lord, I pray that we would be those who are fundamentally different as believers. That we are systematically different. That we would demonstrate Christ. I praise you that you are not promising in any way, shape, or form, easy. But instead, just like our co-workers, just like our neighbors, just like our family members who do not know you as Savior, we endure the same kinds of suffering as, as they. Reigns on the just and the unjust. Lord, we pray now that what we do with those trials would be evidence to a lost and dying world would be done as those who are seeking to please our Lord. We thank you for Paul's reminder that you are at hand. Pray now that we would be found faithful and obedient to worshiping and serving, glorifying you, because you are worthy of our worship and praise. It would cause us today, if no other application from this message is apparent or actual for us, cause us to be those who will have a settled conviction that you alone are worthy of our, wor- of our worship and praise. Lord, we exalt you now, and it is with great joy that we prepare to partake in the Lord's table. The reason that we are able to worship you is because of the work that was done. The reason that we're able to draw near to you is because of the work that was done on our behalf, for our sakes. Cause us to be those who will lift our voices in worship and in praise as we partake in this table together and as we respond in song afterwards. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. It is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen.